Hi, everyone. It's, it's Daryl. I want to thank you for listening to this sermon on the podcast. I never could have imagined that these messages I preached to rooms years and decades ago would serve many people beyond those rooms. I love Jesus and his word, and it is a great joy to be able to share what he has taught me with you. This year, the team and I want to continue to serve disciples of Jesus around the world by sharing more sermons, old and new, as well as new resources that the Lord has impressed on my heart to give away. It has always been our desire to give all of this away for free. But for those of you who would want to and are able to partner to help us give away more this year, you would be welcome to join us. You can do so at the website the team has set up, daryljohnson.ca donate. You can also leave a message for us there and tell us what has impacted you personally. Simply hit the Contact Us button to do that. We'd love to be able to hear from you. I would especially like to know what is ministering to you from the sermons. Thank you again for listening. May God bless you, and I hope you enjoyed today's message. Hello, and welcome to this week's sermon on the Daryl Johnson Podcast. It's Jaden here. This message that you're about to listen to is part two of Daryl's three-part exploration of Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15 to chapter 6, verse 9. In this message, Daryl continues to explore Paul's command to be filled with the Spirit, and he explains how that works itself out in all of our human relationships. Specifically for this sermon, Daryl focuses on the relationships between husbands and wives, as well as Christ and the church, showing us how the text invites all of us into the high calling of standing under and serving all people with whom we have relationship. Now, before I pass it off to Daryl, in case you didn't know, this podcast is just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to Daryl's content. If you head to darylljohnson.ca, you'll find Daryl's actual sermon notes, other teachings that aren't featured on the podcast, videos from Daryl's current teaching, and more. So just head to darylljohnson.ca, and we hope that all that you find there serves you in some way. Okay, here's Daryl with another message in Ephesians. We are going to once again read a revolutionary text. Revolutionary in the first century city of Ephesus and revolutionary in the 21st century cities of our world. Although this text has been around for 2,000 years now, and although it has brought significant redemptive changes in many cultures around the world, no culture I know of has yet worked out its full implications. Our text is Ephesians chapter 5, beginning at verse 15 and reading through chapter 6, verse 9. You've been sitting a while. Would you be willing to stand for the reading of the text? Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is and do not get drunk with wine for that is dissipation, but be filled with the spirit. 
speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ also loved the church. And gave himself up for her. So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the earth. And fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters, according to the flesh, with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service or men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether slave or free. And masters, do the same things to them and give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. You may be seated. Now, at the heart of this revolutionary text is one basic exhortation. One. It's in verse 18. But be filled with the Spirit. Do not get drunk with wine, Paul says, for that is dissipation, it's waste, it's emptiness. Quit trying to fill your soul with that which does not fill your soul. You were created in such a way that what finally fills you is the spirit, the spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity. It's what makes a person a Christian. It's what makes a human being a a new creation. Be filled, be filled, be filled with the spirit of Jesus Christ, with the very life of the living God. This is the air I breathe. Your holy presence living in me. Everything Paul develops, everything Paul develops in Ephesians 1:15 to 6:9 flows out of that filling. Indeed, what Paul develops in the text is impossible to live without that filling. We just can't do it unless we have the filling of the Spirit. Now, let me once again highlight, and I'll do this again next Sunday, let me once again highlight how the whole text goes together. Paul begins with a series of not but lines. 
Not walk as unwise, but walk as wise. Not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Then he spells out a number of consequences or results of this filling. All participles, not imperatives as some translations have them. They're participles. They're results of the one great imperative, be filled. Speaking, singing and making melody, giving thanks and being subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Not be subject as too many translations have it. It is not in the imperative. It is a participle in a series of participles. It's not a new sentence, as some translations have it. And it certainly is not a new paragraph, as some translations have it. Being subject. It's the result of being filled with the Spirit. Then, Paul works all this out in three sets of human relationships. Wives and husbands. Children and fathers. Servants and masters. Wives being subject to their husbands and husbands being subject to their wives. Children being subject to their fathers, to their parents and parents being subject to their children. Servants being subject to their masters and masters being subject to their servants, which is why I have used the word revolutionary. Revolutionary. Being filled with the Spirit of God turns our understanding of human relationships on its head. Turns it upside down so that we can stand right side up again. Because of sin, sin is basically the self turned in on itself. Because of sin and because of the principalities and powers Paul speaks about in the next section, human relationships have been twisted and changed from what God originally designed them to be. Jesus Christ comes into the world and through his Holy Spirit begins to untwist and untangle those relationships, restoring them to God's original design. Being subject to one another. Literally, it is standing under one another. Hupo tasso. Under, hupo under tasso stand. Be filled with the Spirit and you will find yourself Standing under one another. Now, as I suggested the last time we read this text, I think Paul here is working with a passage from the gospel according to Mark. It's Mark 10, 42 to 45. In that passage, two of Jesus' first disciples, James and John, come to Jesus and they ask him, will you let us sit on your right and left in this kingdom you're establishing? Jesus gathers all of his disciples together and he says, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it is not so among you, not so in my kingdom, for whoever wishes to be great among you will be the servant of all. Whoever wishes to be first among all among you shall be slave of all for even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. Humanity that is not yet drawn into the kingdom of God over, over, over. Humanity not yet filled with the spirit of God. The operative word is over, over. Humanity drawn into the kingdom of God under 
Serving one another. Humanity filled with the Spirit of God. It's under serving one another. Being subject to one another. Standing under one another. Wives standing under their husbands, but husbands standing under their wives. Children standing under their fathers, fathers standing under their children. Servants standing under their masters, and masters standing under their servants. Now today I want us to focus on verses 22 to 33. And I want to focus on the revolution taking place in the wife-husband-husband-wife relationship. Now, as I do, I'm aware that not everyone in this room is married. I'm aware that many people in this room are single. Some of you are wanting to be married, but you've never found the right person. Some of you have been called to the single life in order to be fully engaged in some particular work of the kingdom. Some of you have lost your spouses, either through death or divorce, both excruciatingly painful. But I want to say to those not married that the text about marriage nevertheless speaks to you for three reasons. First, what Paul says, or as I should say, what the Holy Spirit who inspires Paul says to the marriage relationship relates to every relationship. Yes, Paul is going to emphasize the unique bond between a husband and a wife, this one flesh bond. But what he says to wives and husbands works in every relationship as well, as I trust you will see in a moment. Second, the section on marriage speaks to the non-married because of the way the text flows from verse 21 to verse 22. Look at that on the text that's in front of you. Look at the flow from verse 21 to 22. I need you to look at that so you can see it. Look how it's printed in the text before you. This is from the New American Standard Bible. Being subject to one another in the fear of Christ, wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Notice that the be subject there is italicized. Do you see that? Some of you shake your heads, make sure that you're seen. It's italicized. Now, why is it italicized? Not for emphasis, as you might assume. As though first century wives had to be especially told to be subject. Why is it italicized? It's italicized to tell us it's not in the original text. Paul did not write the italicized words, be subject. He did not write wives be subject in this verse. He didn't do that. The verb is not there in the original text. It's inserted by the translators in order to make the sentence flow more smoothly. Paul literally says, being subject to one another in the fear of Christ, wives to your own husbands. No verb. Why no verb? Now, also look at verse 24. So also the wives ought to be to their husbands. Notice that the ought to be is italicized. You see that? Why? To make sure wives really get it? (laughs) No. Once again, to tell us that it's not in the original text. Paul did not write in this text, ought to be. He does say that to the husbands later on. Ought to be. Why? so, So, why no verb, be subject, in verse 22, and why no ought to be in verse 24? Well, my scholar friend in Manila, Bong Manayan, asks, Could it be that Paul has something else in mind? Bong, or Peter, as he likes to be called, suggests, rightly I think, that given the social reality 
Wives are already submitting to their husbands. Given that reality, to say be subject is redundant. Peter Manion writes this. Considering the bigger picture of where Paul is coming from, namely, the greatest in the kingdom of God is servant, could it be that he's actually upholding the wives as the model of servanthood for all the other relationships? In verse 22, Paul is not telling wives to be subject. He does not need to. They already are. And so are children. And so are servants. In speaking of wives directly on the heels of being subject to one another, Paul is telling us what spirit-filled relating to other persons looks like in all relational spheres. So the German New Testament scholar, Marcus Barth, son of the great Karl Barth, argues that there is an implied E.G. in the text. E.G., wives to your own husbands. E.G. is a way of saying, for example, or just as. So Bart writes, stylistic and material reasons recommend the addition of E.G. in the English translation. E.G. communicates exactly what is indicated by the structure of the Greek sentence. The submitting of wives is an example of the same mutual submitting, which is shown by the husband's love, the children's obedience, the parents' responsibility for their offspring, the slave and master's attitude to one another. So I think we can render the flow from verse 21 to 22 this way. Being subject to one another in the fear of Christ, just as wives to their husbands. Wives have been living the underness of the kingdom for centuries. And now, because of the coming of Jesus Christ and because of the coming of the spirit, husbands finally get to catch up. And so do parents. And so do masters. All three of the parties who held the power in these relationships also, now get to live the kingdom way. The great ones exercise authority over. Not so among you. It's under. Wives have understood this under for centuries. And Paul holds them up at the beginning as models of what being subject to one another looks like in all relational spheres. Are you following me? You don't have to agree, but are you following me? Now, third, what Paul says to the marriage relationship speaks to all relationships because what he says to the marriage relationship goes beyond the relationship of marriage to the relationship between Christ and the church. Should I say that again? What Paul says to the marriage relationship speaks to all relationships because what Paul speaks to the marriage relationship goes beyond the marriage relationship to the relationship between Christ and the church. Christ is a husband to us all. We are his bride. All of us, female and male, we're his bride. You may not be married to a man or a woman right now, But if you believe in Jesus Christ, the Savior and Lord, if you belong to Jesus Christ, you are married to Jesus Christ. Throughout the scriptures, Jesus often speaks of his relationship with us in terms of the bride and the groom. We are all his bride, all of us together, his bride, married and non-married. We are the bride of Jesus Christ, which means that when Paul speaks to wives He is speaking to women 
who were wives before they got married. And when Paul speaks to men, they were wives before they got married. And that changes everything in this text. So, although verses 22 to 23 of chapter 5 are speaking to the wife-husband-husband-wife relationship, what he develops speaks to all of our relationships. Now, at this point, we could proceed in a number of different ways. One way would be just to listen to what Paul says to wives and then listen to what Paul says to husbands. But I think a more helpful way is to lift up what I will call the dynamics of the revolution being worked out in the wife-husband-husband-wife relationship. Paul is turning everything on its head. I see four dynamics of the revolution. Four. First, notice that Paul speaks directly to those who were powerless in the first century. Paul speaks directly to women, children, and servants. That's unheard of. In the first century, you would not find a text that speaks directly to these people. Why speak directly to wives, children, and servants when they had no status in society? Why speak directly to wives, children, and servants when the rest of society thought of them as non-human? In the first century, and in many parts of the world in the 21st century, one speaks to a wife through her husband. One speaks to children through their father. One speaks to a servant through the master. The proper way for Paul to have written this would be, now husbands, tell your wives to be subject to you. Now fathers, tell your children to obey you. Now, masters, tell your servants to be subject to you. But no, Paul speaks directly to the powerless. And that simple act was revolutionary. Children, wives, and servants are now treated as equal. They're now given status as persons. Do you see that? Paul can speak directly to these people because, and here's the second dynamic of the revolution. Each party of the wife-husband-husband-wife relationship has a relationship that precedes and supersedes the wife-husband-husband-wife relationship. Each party of the wife-husband-husband-wife relationship has a relationship that precedes and supersedes the wife-husband-husband-wife relationship. Each party of the relationship has a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that relationship shapes and determines the nature of the husband-wife relationship. It determines the nature of all of our relationships. Notice the phrase in verse 22, as to the Lord. You see that? As to the Lord. Wives to your own, own husbands, as to the Lord. Is Paul saying that husbands function as Lord? No. There is only one Lord in every relationship, and that's Jesus Christ. Nobody else gets that role as Lord. Is Paul saying that the wife is supposed to treat her husband as though he were the Lord? <laughs> as Jesus? No, the husband is not Jesus in any way. As to the Lord, Paul is saying that wives are to stand under their husbands because they have a relationship with the Lord. They have a relationship with the Lord who understands his lordship in terms of servanthood. As to the Lord means, I think, because you have a different kind of Lord. 
relate to your husband, Paul is saying, the way the Lord himself relates to your husband as servant. Jesus Christ relates to your husband as servant. So you do it, too. This is the same thing he says to servants. Chapter six, verse seven, with good will, render service as to the Lord, not to humans. We serve one another because we belong to the Lord, who is the great servant. Each party of the relationships has a relationship with Jesus Christ that precedes and supersedes the relationship. Thus, when I perform a wedding. And there are a number of you in the sanctuary for whom I've done that. I say to couples, remember, before you belong to one another, you belong to Jesus Christ. I say to the groom, before she is yours, she is his. And I say to the bride, before he is yours, he is his. And being his shapes the way husband and wife relate. Maybe you saw in the October 10th issue of McLean's, the cover story entitled The Secret Lives of Wives, (laughs) The Surprising Things Women Do to Stay Happily Married turns out to be quite profound. I don't agree with everything that's written here, but one thing is right on the target. Those who stay happily married have other relationships in their lives. For good reason. No one person can be everything to us. We need other relationships. And what Paul is telling us in this text is that the other relationship that enables us to stay happily married is the relationship with Jesus Christ. Before we belong to another human being, we belong to him. Before we're married to another human being, we're married to him. What Paul says to wives, he says because they first belong to Jesus. A wife stands under her husband, not because the husband is inherently worth it. Sorry, guys. We're not inherently worth it. A wife stands under her husband, not because the husband has this status that somehow deserves it. We don't. The wife stands under her husband because her Lord calls her to do it. And a husband stands under his wife because his Lord called him to do it. She has a relationship which precedes and supersedes the marriage relationship. And that relationship calls her and frees her. It calls him and frees him to live the way of the kingdom, to serve as the great servant serves. Thus, and here is the third dynamic of the revolution. The model for the wife, husband, husband, wife relationship is the relationship between Christ and his church, the church and Christ. The model for the husband-wife-wife-husband relationship is the Christ-Church-Church-Christ relationship. And that's a relationship that transcends all cultural understandings of marriage. It transcends the first century Jewish, first century Greek, first century Roman. It transcends the 21st Canadian understanding, 21st American understanding, 21st Korean understanding, 21st Chinese understanding, 21st Indian understanding, native Mexican. It transcends all cultural understandings of marriage. No culture in any time of history has gotten it right. (laughs) Because the model for the husband, wife, wife, husband relationship is Christ and his church. 
It's what Paul calls a mystery. The great mystery. The mega mystery. Something we could have never figured out on our own. Something God had to reveal to us. Wives, as Christ to the church. Husbands, no, no, I said that wrong, didn't I? Wives, as the church to Christ. Husbands, as Christ to the church. Wives, relate to your husbands as Christ relates to the church. In submission to him as head. Now, as you may know, there's a lot of debate about this word head. What does Paul mean by head? It seems to me he answers right there in the text. Verse 23. Christ is the head of the church. He himself being the savior of the body. It's in line with what Jesus himself said in Mark 10, 45. For even the son of man who has all the authority did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. You see, for Jesus... For Jesus, being Lord means being servant. For Jesus, there is no other kind of Lord except servant. And for Jesus, being head means being Savior. Now, who would not want to be submissive to a head who thinks in terms of being a Savior? Wives as the church to Christ, husbands as Christ to the church, all... Here's where I get undone. Mercy me. Love my wife the way Christ loves the church. That's what it says in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. It's not italicized because it's really there. (laughs) Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church. And gave himself up for her. Christ goes to the cross for us. Christ gives up everything for us. While serving in Manila, I had a weekly Wednesday Bible class. And one day we were working through this text and and a woman stood up in the back of the class and said very angrily, this is crazy. Why are wives told to submit when husbands are told only to love? And my response was, only love? Only love. That was revolutionary in the first century and every subsequent century. If wives are called to do an under, husbands are called to do a double under. Husbands, stand under your wives by loving them the way Jesus Christ loves the church. Christ loves the church by getting under the church. You follow him, husbands, and get under your wives. Only love as Christ loves the church. Mercy me. Christ gave himself up for the church. That he might sanctify her, says Paul. That he might make us holy and therefore whole. Having cleansed her by the washing of the word, says Paul, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she should be holy and blameless. This is how I'm supposed to love Sharon. This is how I'm supposed to live out this being filled with the spirit and being subject to one another the way Christ loves the church. Oh, Paul here is working with the first century understanding of marriage or customs. Anyway, the bride and groom would cleanse themselves 
often take ritual baths. They would do everything they could to prepare and adore themselves, adorn themselves for the wedding. And Paul is saying that's what Christ Jesus does for us. He goes to great length to make us all he wants us to be, to be his beautiful bride, holy and blameless. So the same words he uses in the beginning of the book when he blesses God for choosing us from the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless. Husbands are called to love their wives by participating in Christ's work in their lives, doing all they can to enable their wives to become whole in Jesus Christ. Paul is also working with a passage from the Old Testament, from the book of Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 16, God is speaking to his people who have wandered off. Uh, They've committed adultery. God says, nevertheless, I'm not going to give up on you. And then God says, I swore to you and entered into a covenant with you that you became mine. Then I bathed you and anointed you and clothed you and adorned you. And you were exceedingly beautiful because I put my splendor into you. Paul takes those same words now and applies them to Christ and the church. That's how Jesus Christ loves us. And he says, that's what husbands are called to do with their wives. Can you feel how revolutionary this was in the first century? And how revolutionary it is in the 21st century? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. After working through the text along these lines in Manila that day, the same woman put up her hand and stood up again and she said, I would be crazy not to submit myself to a husband who understands this text. Indeed. Love as Christ loves. We love because he first loved us. And husbands can love their wives because Christ is loving them, the husbands, before they seek to love their wives. And he's loving the wives before the husbands seek to love them. And so I also say at a wedding, before you love each other, you are already being loved. To the groom... Before you love her, she's already being loved. To the bride, before you love him, he's already being loved. Already being loved by Jesus. Join Jesus in the loving. It takes a huge burden off our shoulders. When we cannot love, for whatever reason, we're to look at the other person and realizing that he or she is being loved, enter into Jesus' loving. One more dynamic of the revolution. One more. And we're coming to the end. He who loves his own wife loves himself. Verse 28. So husbands ought to also love their wives as his own bodies. For he who loves his own wife loves himself. What does Paul mean? What is he getting at here? I do not know fully. This is the only place in scripture where we have this wording. It seems to me that Paul might be wrestling with the second greatest commandment. The first great commandment is you shall love the Lord with your God with everything. The second is you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Oh, my goodness. If we were just to obey that second commandment, would the world get changed? (laughs) Each of us make sure that we eat well. Now make sure your neighbor eats well. Each of us make sure we have a place to sleep tonight. Make sure your neighbor has a place to sleep. Each of us make sure we have a job. Make sure your neighbor has a job. Now, a husband's closest neighbor is his wife. 
A wife's closest neighbor is her husband. So the second great command starts with love your spouse as you love yourself. Daryl, you make sure you have all you need to be fully human. Now make sure Sharon has all she needs to be fully human. You make sure that you have everything that you need to live in the kingdom of God. Make sure she has everything to live in the kingdom of God. But Paul seems to be pushing it further and deeper. He who loves himself, loves his wife, loves himself. Not loves as himself, but loves himself. I suggest that what he's getting at is this. Somehow... The husband's own well-being is tied up in the way he loves his wife. Yes, the wife's own being is tied up in how well the husband loves her, but so is his. As the husband loves his closest neighbor, somehow he's loving himself, not just because of the one flesh uh, reality of marriage. But because in loving his wife as he loves himself, loving his wife as Christ loves the church, it, tend, it turns out he ends up loving himself. He may not intend to, but he ends up loving himself. Because as the husband loves his wife, it turns out that one of the greatest of human needs is being met. The need to learn to love. Oh, yes, we have the need to be loved, right? But a great need... In fact, a greater need is to learn to love. How often have we heard people say, well, my spouse no longer meets my needs. I'm going to I'm going to move on. So so where did meeting my needs come in in the whole arrangement? (laughs) And besides, no one human being meets our needs. No two human being will meet our needs. Only the one true human, Jesus Christ, can meet our needs. But more to the point, one of the greatest needs is the need to learn to love. We are not yet truly human until we learn to love. Love another person, especially another person who does not meet your needs. And you end up loving yourself to love. One of my heroes in the kingdom is a man named Robertson McQuilkin. For 30 years, Robertson McQuilkin was the president of Columbia Bible College and Seminary, and he was also professor of ethics and hermeneutics. During the latter years of his ministry, his wife, Muriel, developed Alzheimer's. And at first, Dr. McQuilkin tried to care for Muriel and carry on his responsibilities at the college and seminary. But as the condition worsened, he had to make make a choice, his ministry or his wife. This is what he says in his letter of resignation. My dear wife, Muriel, has been failing, has meant failing mental health for years now. So far, I've been able to carry both her growing needs and my leadership responsibilities. But recently, it has become apparent that Muriel is contented when she is with me and not at all when I'm away from her. It's not just discontent. She's filled with fear, even terror, that she has lost me and always goes searching for me when I leave home. She may even be full of anger if she cannot get to me. So it is clear to me that she needs me now full time. So I'm going to resign. But then he says, this decision was actually made 42 years ago when at my wedding, I said, for richer, for poorer, for sickness and health. As long as we both shall live. She's cared for me for fully, so fully and sacrificially all these years. If I cared for her for the next 40 years, I would not be out of debt. Duty, however, can be grim and stoic. But there is more. I love Muriel 
I do not have to care for her. I get to. McQuilkin was urged by many people to search the world over for some kind of, of, of miracle drug that would enable him to care for his wife and continue in his ministry. But he finally concluded that was not what they were supposed to do. We would trust the Lord, he said, to work a miracle in Muriel if he so desired. Or work a miracle in me if he did not. The Lord chose the latter. To work the miracle in him. People would say to him. But she doesn't know. Who she is. Or who you are. And the Colkin would respond. I know who she is. And I love her. Then the Colkin writes this. My imprisonment. Turned out to be a delightful liberation. For I learned to love more fully. Than I had ever known in my life. He who loves his own wife. Loves himself. In doing everything he can for his wife. The husband discovers the fullness of life. In giving his life away for his wife. The husband finally finds life. Boy that was unheard of in Paul's day. Revolutionary in Paul's day. And in our day. But it is what happens when the Spirit comes. It is what happens when the Spirit of Jesus Christ comes. It's what happens when we get filled with the life of the God who reveals himself in a cross. Now, I don't know about you, but before the questions, I need to pray. Andrea. I think we have time for a few questions. Have you been able to run through them? Did you get good ones? Or the way you looked, you make me nervous. Feel that? It's hot. <laughs> uh, there are a lot of really good questions. We probably can't get to all of them, but um, we are going to try and post them on the website. So don't feel like we just overlooked them, but uh, we'll go over them and post them on the website. But here's uh, a few questions that kind of uh, several people were asking. Um, there's a new Calvinism movement that is interpreting these verses strongly on women being submissive. Um, why do you think this is so popular right now? And can you speak more on the headship of men? You would have to give me that one first. <laughs> it gets harder. That's a good question. And uh, as we got to this section of Ephesians, I've had to really work hard. For instance, that last point, he who loves his wife loves himself. I think I've I read 25 commentaries. Nobody will touch that. Um, so this is hard stuff. That'd be one thing to say. Uh, I, I think the bigger thing to say, when you're dealing with any text of Scripture, doesn't matter where it is, what verse, 
We must also always deal with it in light of the whole of the book. So it's always dangerous to burrow down in one little text and just make your whole theology out of that. It's got to be out of the big picture. And this is what I would want to say to this issue. The big picture is that the living God has revealed himself as a different kind of God than any of us would have ever thought. Namely, a God who gives his life for the life of the world. It's a God who gives away. So Mark 10.45, I think, is an interpretive verse. Son of man. The one who is the head. The one who has all authority in the universe. He comes and says, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and give my life away. And because that is the revelation of God culminating in the cross... Then every, and then when God says that because I am who I am, you're going to be a certain kind of people, that has to drive all that. And I, I think some of those movements aren't taking seriously enough verse 21. Being subject to one another. <laughs> Settles it from that point on. It's, everything's turned upside down. Um, now, I know there's a debate about head. I know that. But ask the question. This would be something worth working through. Je- Jesus Christ is the head of the church, right? It's, it says it a couple times in Ephesians. How does Jesus Christ, the head of the church, exercise his headship? I wish, this is what I wish. I wish Jesus Christ, the head, would come and shape us up. I wish he'd tell us a lot of things that we need to do. It's not his style. He comes, he gets under us, he sees where we're hurting, he sees why we can't follow him, we're trapped in things in our past, we're stuck, and he comes, and from within, through his love, he begins to transform us to the place where he doesn't have to tell us what to do, we just want to do it because we belong to Christ. That's what his headship looks like, so I think that's what the headship and family should look like. So... I guess the way I would put it, if someone wants to work with the headship and hold that thing there, clearly the rest of Scripture says that to follow Jesus Christ is to be a foot washer. So to be the head means to be the first string foot washer. You're the first one down on the floor with the towel. That's what it means to be the head. All right. But I believe that about governments, too. <laughs> That's what it means to be the prime minister. Another question um, has to do with uh, what about in the case where there is abuse or hurt, uh, where there's divorce or affairs, um, where does this passage uh, come into play? Very oh, painful. I would separate out hurt and abuse. Uh, abuse is hurt. We all hurt each other because we're not yet redeemed. And because I said that we have a relationship that precedes and supersedes our relationship with our spouse and family, that relationship with Jesus Christ in what I would call the normal hurts, that relationship calls me to do the work of reconciliation and forgiveness. I've got to hang in there and do that. Abuse. This is where I would need to know the person more fully, so I would be dangerous response. Abuse. No human being has the right to abuse anyone under any terms. There's no justification for a husband abusing his wife or vice versa. There is just absolutely no justification. And you walk out and you get help 
and we'll help you. We'll find you a home and you tell me who's abusing you and I will get the authorities on them. That's what I think of our response. Okay. We have time for one more? Well, I don't know. I'm just watching, listening to the crowd how I, how I did on that one. <laughs> They're still here. But you would agree with me. No human, no human being has the right to abuse anybody. It's, it's not, there is it written that you can do this. Not in this book, anyway. It's a good book. The last question, I'm putting together a couple of questions. Um, uh, people are asking about the fear of the Lord and where that plays into a relationship. And then what happens when one partner doesn't have the fear of the Lord or there's a domineering woman or a man in this relationship? Oh, boy. Boy. <laughs> I don't think we're going to do this next week, are we? <laughs> no, we're good. We're good. I think the fear of the Lord doesn't mean afraid of the Lord. I think it means recognizing who he is. And so in all of my relationships, in my relationship with you, with you on the staff, with my kids, with my grandkids, I am accountable for my behavior to Jesus Christ. That's what I think the fear of the Lord means. I'm going to treat the other human being the way Jesus Christ calls me to treat him. And so I'm going to fear Christ in that sense. I don't want to go, I don't want to go candy wampus with Christ. So if he tells me this is how I'm supposed to treat people, then that's how I'm going to do that. Now, in the situation where you've got somebody who doesn't respect Christ and doesn't know that, oh my, again, I'd need to know the particulars. But I tried to say a little bit of that in the sermon that Paul's not saying that the wife or the husband is to respect the wife or the husband because they're inherently respectable, but because Jesus tells you to do it. I'm to treat that person the way Christ would want me to treat him, even if he doesn't treat me that way, or vice versa. And I know that's hard. Um, and I think what he'll say later in chapter 6 there is there's, there's a mystery that goes on there too. That over time, sometimes it takes a long time, that love, that servant love will finally break the hardest of hearts. I can't promise you when, but it will. I think that's the gospel. We better stop there. When I was in Chicago two weeks ago, and during the question and answer time with students at that seminary, someone asked, why do you think the Lord called you, Daryl, to preach? And I said, uh, because he knew that I would probably be too lazy to do the kind of work to understand this text if I didn't have to first preach it. And boy, is he working on me. There was one one person in this room for whom this sermon was written. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the love of God the Father. Which we have yet to understand. And the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Be with you and with those you love. Now and forevermore.